1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. Today, from London, I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Plenty of Russian men would prefer fleeing their homeland to being drafted into the war in Ukraine, but few would go to the lengths, would take the risks that two men did, escaping in a tiny boat from Russia's Far East we hear their hair-raising story. And one thing that sets Seventh-day Adventists apart from other denominations is that their diet is tied to their faith. Another is that, on average, they lead longer lives. Our correspondent examines the public health lessons that can be drawn from the community. But first... There's a little jostling going on at the top of a ranking that no one wants to win, the list of cities with the filthiest air. One pattern is clear. A new list from the World Bank says nine of the 10 cities at the top are in South Asia. In part, it's a question of population, of policy, of local practices, like burning off the stubble after grain harvests. But it's also a question of geography, The Indo-Gangetic Plain, bounded by the Himalayas to the north, traps pollution in a huge swath of land, and pollution doesn't pay any mind to national borders. It used to be that Chinese cities topped that unhappy ranking, but policies on emissions there have brought considerable success, policies from which South Asians could start drawing some lessons.
2: An easy way to tell how polluted it is in Bombay is to take a ride down the Bandra Worli Sea Link, which is this big bridge over a small bay that connects two bits of the city.
1: Leo Marani is The Economist's South Asia correspondent.
2: On clear days, you can see the skyline, which is quite a majestic skyline. But recently, especially on many, many days in January, the city just vanished. There was just a grey haze there, and you had no idea that there were any buildings behind it whatsoever, let alone 40 and 50-storey ones. Bombay's been having a rough few weeks and a rough few months, but it's far from unique. All of South Asia has been having a terrible winter when it comes to air quality. Delhi is usually the most polluted city in the world, as well as its satellite cities. In Pakistan, in Lahore, things are pretty horrible. They had to extend school holidays because they couldn't let their kids go out. In Dhaka, a colleague recently was in town and he said he could barely see anything. And it's not just this region of the Indo-Gangetic Plain, but also high up in the mountains in Kathmandu, the capital of Nepal. The smog is obscuring the Himalayas. In Peshawar, near the border with Afghanistan, the air quality has plummeted. The pollution really is spreading across the whole region.
1: And presumably all of that pollution is not just an eyesore, but a health concern.
2: It is a massive health concern. I mean, I can tell you personally that I've had a cough in recent weeks because just of the horrible air quality. I recently bought my mum an air purifier, which is something, you know, people in Bombay really didn't do. It was something we sort of thought people up north did. But on a much broader scale, out of the seven odd million people every year who die because of air pollution, two million of those are in Bangladesh, India, Nepal and Pakistan alone, mostly in India, simply because it has the largest number of people. There's various kinds of pollutants in the air. The worst of this stuff is something called PM2.5, which is very fine particulate matter, really, really teeny tiny, even smaller than a human hair. And that stuff is really dangerous because it can burrow deep into your lungs and enter the bloodstream, which increases the risk of heart and lung disease and of strokes. Moreover, even if the air pollution is not actually killing you immediately, It's reducing average life expectancy by 2.9 years globally, by about five years in India, and in some really badly affected parts of the Indo-Gangetic Plain, which is up north in India, by as much as seven years. It's also bad for the economy. In 2019, a study published in The Lancet, which is a respected medical journal, estimated that India's economy lost 1.4% of GDP, or about $37 billion, because of pollution-related death and illness. Another study calculated that India lost 1.3 billion working days that year due to employees staying at home or because their family members were unwell because of pollution.
1: So you say that the problem is getting more widespread, but it's certainly not a new one. What's being done?
2: It's not a new one at all. It's something that has concerned citizens across the region for quite a long time. It's frankly astonishing that not more has been done so far. In 2019, India launched a national clean air program with the aim of improving air quality in around 130-odd cities. Four years in, by January this year, only 38 of those were on track to hit their targets. In many cities, including, again, those far outside the indo gangetic plains, such as Bangalore in the south, Chennai in the south, Mumbai here in the west, they've all gotten worse. Next, Pakistan. They've been thinking about launching a national clean air program focused on provinces instead of cities, but haven't got around to it. Bangladesh drafted a Clean Air Act in 2019, has not passed it. So there's surprisingly little being done, despite the fact that this is an obvious and urgent problem and one that affects everybody and even what is being done. I mean, if you look at India's national clean air program, that's a start. At least something's happening, but it is far, far, far from enough. And the main reason for that is that even if cities did everything in their power to reduce their own emissions, to clean up their own streets, to eliminate building and construction dust and all of this stuff, they would still be horribly polluted because in most South Asian cities, less than 50% of the pollution comes from within the city itself.
1: So less than half of a given place's pollution arises in that place. Where, where is it coming from?
2: Well, if you think about it, Jason, humans create city limits and state boundaries and international borders and all of that. But air, like water, circulates the way it circulates. So in a city like Bombay, a lot of the pollution comes from the mainland. In a city like Delhi, a lot of the pollution comes from the states surrounding it. In November, for instance, which is the worst time in Delhi, the reason is that in the state of Punjab, to the west, Farmers are burning the stubble that is left on their fields as an efficient and cheap way to prepare for the next season of sowing. In Dhaka, the capital of Bangladesh, it's surrounded by all these extremely inefficient and dirty brick kilns. And there's very little you can do as a city about those things out there. You don't have jurisdiction. And it's not just, you know, in your immediate neighborhood. In India's Punjab, about 30% of the pollution originates in Pakistan, In Bangladesh's major cities, about 30% of the pollution actually originates in India. And sometimes this goes back and forth, you know, because wind patterns change. So this is everybody's problem, one that needs to be solved collectively. But how to do that? As you
1: say, there are issues of state borders and, and jurisdiction.
2: True. So, I mean, let me at the outset say that the idea of India, Pakistan and Bangladesh and Nepal all working together is a bit fanciful, talking today in 2023, perhaps one day. However, states within countries working together should be possible. It's something that's been shown to work elsewhere. Take China. Before Delhi became the sort of poster city for horrible air, it was Beijing. And yet they've done a remarkable job of cleaning up their pollution. What the government did after some particularly horrific episodes is they created an authority that is in charge of managing something called an air shed, which is just you know, a jargony word for a region in which air circulates. That took in Beijing, Tianjin, and 26 other prefectures that were nearby. And so with that sort of management, you can actually achieve a lot more.
1: So are policymakers taking note there? Are there moves to roll out this kind of setup in South Asia?
2: South Asia so far has only one of these, which is the Commission for Air Quality Management launched a few years ago in Delhi that's responsible for the national capital region, which is about 55,000 square kilometers, 46 million people, covers Delhi plus a number of other states. And they also have this sort of vague extra power, which is adjacent areas. And already there's some modest gains being seen. According to official figures, Delhi's average daily concentrations of PM 2.5 declined last year to 98 micrograms per cubic meter from 105 the previous year. But There will have to be a huge expansion of such efforts all across India, in several regions in Pakistan, and ideally one day across countries.
1: You said that the idea of that kind of international cooperation was fanciful, but but surely this eventually becomes so big a shared problem that cooperation becomes all but necessary, no?
2: Perhaps. I mean, I think we're in the realm of pure speculation here, but I can imagine a point where India, for instance, buoyed by the success of the CAQM management in Delhi, sort of extends that approach throughout the country, but there's still pollution coming in from neighbouring states, or another country does that and has pollution coming in from India, and then there's some progress. But you must remember that these are very, very big countries. There's a lot that can be done internally, and very simple stuff, brick kilns, can be made more efficient or shut down. One of the major polluting factors inside homes in the North is using solid fuels for cooking, such as wood or cow dung. That's another easy win and one that India is working on by providing free gas. There's a lot that countries can do before it becomes necessary or imperative for them to have to cooperate with their neighbours. But it's really, really urgent that these countries start doing these things. And it's really the best way to ensure that people like me and my family who live here are able to actually breathe the air when we go out.
1: Thanks very much for your time, Leo.
2: Thanks for having me, Jason.
0: Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys. Good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move.
3: Several weeks ago I met Sergei and Maxime with an interpreter. They are two friends about 40 years old from a port town in Russia's far east called Evekinov.
4: Uh-huh.
3: Sergey is this really outgoing, dynamic truck driver. Maxim, much more reserved. He's a fisherman.
1: Charlie McCann writes for 1843, our sister magazine.
3: They met as teenagers, and their friendship, as they told me, has really been sustained over the years by their shared belief in the crookedness of the Russian state.
4: Uh, uh, Sergei
3: talked about how the country feels like a concentration camp.
4: There's
3: very little freedom of expression. And they both talked about how they think the war in Ukraine is not just pointless, but evil. And they said it was inconceivable for them to fight for a government that they despised as much as they do. Speaking out against Russia is dangerous in the country, Sergei told me. He knew that people would happily report criticisms to the government. He couldn't help himself. He would tell everyone in their small town what he thought about the state. And he also talked a lot about the war in Ukraine, how he was vehemently opposed to it. Eventually, he got in trouble. In August, the FSB, Russia's internal security agency, Charged Sergey with extremism and told him not to leave the town without their permission. So that was when he decided to flee, but it was a close call. One morning in September, both Sergey and Maxim received a knock on the door. Both knew not to answer it. Because, of course, it was the government looking for conscripts for the war in Ukraine. And Maxim told me that if you answered that door, they would just take you. So, Sergei asked Maxim to come round to his house because, of course, they couldn't speak on the phone. So once they'd got together, Sergei proposed a rather drastic solution. He suggested that they flee to Alaska by crossing the Bering Sea in Maxime's fishing boat. Now, just stop for a minute to think about what this proposal actually looks like. This would be a 300-mile voyage in one of the world's most dangerous bodies of water in Maxim's fishing boat, a tiny 16-foot vessel with not a terribly strong engine. Maxim agreed to go with him immediately. As he saw it, he could either die in Ukraine or try to escape to America. The plan was to get to the island of St. Lawrence off the west coast of Alaska. And so over the next three days, they very hurriedly went about making arrangements. It didn't take
4: long. It didn't take
3: long. Maxime got the boat ready. He bought a ton of provisions. Bread, sausages, eggs, tea, coffee, biscuits, and of course plenty of fuel.
4: And so finally,
3: at 4 p.m. on September 29th, they got into Maxim's boat, and they set off. They took turns steering and keeping watch, and navigated the vessel down the coast of the Chukotka Peninsula. And the first few days went pretty well. These were, of course, waters they had grown up in. And they told me about how they saw orcas, uh, walruses, whales, the weather was good. That first night, they spent on shore with Maxim's relatives.
4: The
3: second night, they stayed with acquaintances of Sergei's. Other nights, they pitched their tents in the wild. But of course, they were always worried about being discovered. When they were back in the boat, they didn't say much to each other. They told me they just thought, if only we can make it without getting caught.
4: Um, they were
3: particularly concerned about the second half of the journey. The coast of Chukotka is heavily fortified and their route took them past these towns that were just bristling with border guards. And, you know, somehow, despite this quite dangerous patch of water, no one stopped them. And so they were becoming tantalizingly close to the end of this 300 mile journey. It was day five. Alaska lay just twenty miles away, and then Sergei saw something that made him very scared. He saw in the distance the white caps of these enormous ten-foot waves.
4: They were about to run into a gale. They were about to run into a gale.
3: As they approached this enormous storm, the wave started getting bigger and bigger. Sergei noticed that the vessel was taking on water. And by that point, they were being tossed between what Sergei described as these walls just gigantic mammoth waves. <inaudible> Sergei closed his eyes and thought, I shouldn't be here. No human should be in this place. The only reason they survived was because of Maxime. He is such a deft sailor. And then they arrived in American waters.
4: Morning, in Gamble. 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 Yeah.
3: They arrived in the town of Gamble, and a lot of people came to check out these strangers. At first, the locals, you know, seeing that these, these people were wearing camo jackets, wondered if they were Russian soldiers. Sergey and hastened to explain they were seeking political asylum. Welcome <laughs> <America>. <laughs> uh, yes. Once they reached an understanding with the locals, the crowd responded really warmly. They said, welcome to America. They got some pizza around, they got some juice, and they said, you're safe now. But the relief didn't last long. Within just a few hours, they were taken into custody by the local police force, who then handed them over to the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency. What that meant for them was that they were flown to a detention center in Washington state. I mean, obviously, they were fed, but the food was, was very bad. You know, Sergei told me it was rice and beans, beans and rice. They both said it was a miserable experience. They had never expected to be treated in this way. And yet, they wanted to be in the U.S. I asked Sergei, what did he think of America? And he told me he knew it was a free country with functioning laws. That was why he wanted to be in the U.S. And finally, after three very long months in detention, they're both now out on bail. They're really excited to start their new life in in the U.S. They're both hoping to build lives for themselves in a country where they think they can be free to express their opinions and live their lives without fear of retaliation. Has it all been worth it? But yes, yeah. yes, yes.
1: At the Seventh-day Adventist community in Loma Linda, California, they sing happy birthday a lot. This sect of Christianity dictates that health is a core part of religious devotion. And researchers have noticed something striking when comparing this small religious community to the rest of America. They have more birthdays to sing about.
5: What is really interesting about Loma Linda is its old people. Specifically, it has a high share of centenarians when compared to the rest of America and the rest of the world.
1: Tamara Jolks-Bohr is The Economist's U.S. policy correspondent.
5: There have been many studies published about this community, but one study published over 20 years ago found that Adventists who follow their religion's healthy lifestyle could expect to live 10 years longer than others who do not.
1: And is that a draw then for people to come and live in Loma Linda, to join the faith even?
5: It certainly makes people more interested in the community. I, like many others, decided to go there and talk to people about their lifestyles. And while I was there, I met one man named Paul DeMazzo. He is 96 years old.
6: I've done more things in my life than most people do in three lifetimes, and all because I've had outstanding health all my life. I could never be a couch potato.
5: Paul works nine-hour days, six days a week. He has a recurring spot on a radio show, and amazingly, he can still fit into his uniform from when he fought in World War II.
6: Yes, I was drafted in World War II Mm -hmm. at 18 and a half. That was taken 10 years ago. And this is the same identical uniform I wore when I was first.
5: You could wear the same sized uniform? Yes, even today. I asked him what motivated him.
6: I didn't want to be like most Americans who begin dying at 60. There are so many people in America with chronic diseases that they brought on that I refuse to go there.
5: He believes his lifestyle, fueled by his religious devotion, is keeping him healthy.
6: Well, let's talk about the the religious
1: devotion end of that. What is it that Seventh-day Adventists believe?
5: Yeah, so Seventh-day Adventism is a denomination of Protestant Christianity that observes the Sabbath on Saturday and hopes for the imminent second coming of Christ. In the mid-1800s, the founder of the Seventh-day Adventist community, Ellen White, claimed she had a vision. The vision told her that she and her brethren should eat food as it grows out of the ground. They must also be careful with animal products and avoid smoking, alcohol, and drugs. As a result, most Adventists are vegetarians and they do not smoke or drink.
1: So it stands to reason that if you become a vegetarian, you don't smoke, you don't drink, that you're probably going to have a longer life. But do we know more specifically why these longer lifespans are happening?
5: Pretty much. Since the 1970s, the federal government has given Loma Linda University, the health sciences university tied to the Seventh-day Adventist community, over $30 million for the Adventist Health Study. And its goal is to understand why they live so long. And the research supports their vegetarianism. According to the study, people who regularly consume red and processed meat had an 18% higher risk of mortality overall. Adventism also discourages eating ultra-processed foods, such as white bread. People who regularly consume these foods for half of their total calories have a 14% increase in mortality compared to those who ate those foods for a small portion of their diet. Other studies beyond this study support these results.
1: Right. So that seems to indicate that the Seventh-day Adventists' diet and and habits are what's contributing here and not necessarily so much the the faith itself. Is that faith part necessary?
5: Of course, you can eat healthy foods without becoming a Seventh-day Adventist. What is different in the Seventh-day Adventist community is that they've changed the environment around them. Everyone is working towards similar goals. So, for example, at church gatherings for the Seventh-day Adventists, they have bountiful salads, fruit, lentils over brown rice. But when I went to church gatherings, we had fried chicken, pies. It's a very different experience. The community just gives you the option to say yes to eating without having to say yes to bad fatty foods. Another example is that Loma Linda did not even have a McDonald's until about 10 years ago. Whereas America more broadly, you can find a McDonald's in every neighborhood. And America is struggling with their obesity. One in five children and 42% of adults are obese in America.
1: So what about exporting some of these ideas outside this community?
5: Yes, since 2009, there has been a program called the Blue Zones Project. And over 70 communities have already signed up. The program works by implementing top-down environmental changes. It requires buy-in from major players. The mayors, city council, hospital leaders, restaurants sign up to provide plant-based options, schools promise to teach pupils about nutrition and serve healthy meals, workplaces improve cafeteria options, and remove junk food vending machines. It's a multi-pronged attack to improve a community's health.
1: And how's that effort going so far?
5: There have been promising results. The first community that signed up, Albert Lee, Minnesota, has seen a 35% drop in smoking between 2010 and 2016. A small rural town called Cory in Pennsylvania signed up in 2019. And in three years, the number of residents reporting high cholesterol decreased from 27% to 12%. And it's not just physical health that improves. A study in the British Medical Journal found improved life satisfaction and optimism. But if you can't get to a blue zone community, or don't have the ability to turn your community into one, 96-year-old Paul DiMazzo has his own tip.
6: You eat like a king for breakfast. You eat like a queen for lunch. And you eat like a pauper for supper. King, queen, pauper.
5: That's something we may all want to consider. But I've tried it myself, and I have to say, it takes quite a lot of discipline.
1: Thanks very much for joining us, Tamara. Thanks for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can drop us a line at podcasts at or leave us a rating wherever you listen. We'll see you back here tomorrow.